On this episode of AvTalk, we discuss the Ethiopian investigators' preliminary report on the crash of Ethiopian 302 and Boeing's efforts to get the MAX back in the air. We are also joined by our resident numbers expert, Gavin Werbeloff, to discuss how airlines around the world are managing their fleet renewals and thieves in Albania pull off a brazen heist. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here joined always with... Hello, Ian Jason Rabinowitz here, and we have and, a yes. special guest. Welcome everyone back to the program, Gavin Warboff, our resident numbers expert. He'll be joining us for much of the program today. Hi guys, how's it going? Well, it, it's going well. Jason, you are back from your travels in, in Hamburg. I'm back, um, that's right. Which, My travels uh, were... You, were you made it. Oddly curse-free this year, which is pretty great. I have to say, I, t- I timed my annual appearance on the show a little off because last year I was able to take pot shots at Jason without him being able to respond. That's right. You filled in while I was away at AIX, didn't you? So Gavin is back for this episode. We're going to dig into even more numbers. We're going to hear from Jason and Seth Miller from Hamburg later in the oh, show. I forgot about that. Yeah, cool. <laughs> and we'll we'll dive right into the biggest news of the past two weeks, which is the preliminary accident investigation report into the crash of Ethiopian 302. The Ethiopian Air Accident Investigation Board issued their report at the beginning of April, about a week ago now, and it it lays clear some of the data that we had seen reported previously, but also for the first time makes the charting of the flight data recorders available for inspection or reading, I guess. Yeah. And there's definitely been a lot of inspection and reading and interpretation of that data. And it's pretty much what everyone kind of assumed from day one, that it was a MCAS-induced situation where the angle of attack sensor, which tells the aircraft basically how high or low the nose is pointing, was malfunctioning, or, or some people are hypothesizing that it was sheared off entirely. We're not quite sure, but it was feeding very erroneous or just straight up wrong bad data to the MCAS system, which responded by pitching the nose way, way down, and the flight crew kept trying to counteract it. and. Unfortunately, the steps laid out by Boeing were either insufficient or just weren't able to overcome the forces of the stabilizer trim and, well, we know the, the rest. Yeah, and I guess the really, you know, looking forward, you know, they Boeing can fix the underlying problem. You know, it's kind of scary when the fix for an airplane doing something crazy is a software patch like your phone. The bigger problem is confidence in Boeing and obviously confidence in the FAA because there have been a lot of questions raised about how this plane was certified and how much oversight the FAA actually provided and sort of tension in the system against Boeing in getting this plane to market. Yeah, and there's definitely been in the last couple of weeks a lot more change in opinion, I feel like, that when this second accident with the Ethiopian first occurred, a lot of people I saw on Twitter and social media were of the opinion that the pilots did something wrong and they sh- they probably didn't cut out to MCAS or something along those lines. And 
over the course of a couple of weeks, it's really changed to almost a tone of this plane should never have been designed this way. It's a 60-year-old airframe with endless modifications and stretching and crappy software put on top of it to counteract it. And it's a big dent to Boeing's reputation and along with that, the FAA. I don't think it's anything insurmountable in the long run, but as you said, Gavin, this is going to be something in people's mind for quite a while. And I and I honestly think it'll it could lead to you know a reassessment in what the 797 is going to be with an eye to doing NSA being new small airplane earlier than Boeing otherwise would have simply because the confidence and saleability of the Max is going to plummet. I think one of the most kind of frustrating things for me, at least in, in following the development of the investigation and, and kind of post Lion Air 610 and, and then certainly post Ethiopian 302 is finding out new and different ways that MCAS operates as we go along. And, you know, like nobody had heard of it before Lion Air. I mean, I... It you weren't supposed to know it was a thing. right exactly, and, and so starting from that point and moving forward into oh and by the way it does this oh and by the way it can do this and by the way here's another thing that we didn't tell you before or and by the way here's you know some more information about where the data comes from which is only one AOA you know and things like that and so I think kind of the piecemeal approach to to information about the system, I think is one of the more frustrating aspects of, of how things have developed, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that Airbus has had a much greater head start when it comes to automation in, in the flight deck. The 737 was very much an analog aircraft and eventually some bits and pieces of it became fly-by-wire and engines got bigger, they had to be placed further in front of the wing, and they had to counteract that with software. But some of the decisions Boeing made were, were just extremely questionable. And I'm sure the investigation will look into that. Like, how, like you mentioned, Ian, how is it possible that MCAS could have just looked for data from one AOA vein and, and not compared it against the other ones? It's just, it's bad software. And given the importance of the AOA indicators in activating MCAS, one, how could some sort of fail-safe, if you know, only pulling from one AOA data source rather than both, or having some sort of fail-safe built in saying, well, this data doesn't make any sense because the two veins are completely out of alignment. It's a completely predictable problem. I guess in retrospect, everything is predictable. But if this is a system that was never supposed to it was supposed to be sort of invisible to the pilots. They didn't go very far in making sure it stayed invisible. Yeah. And someone I followed on, on Twitter for a number of years, but for completely different reasons, because he's on tune with satellite Wi-Fi and all this, Peter Lemmy, satcom underscore guru on Twitter, has been posting really, really interesting tidbits. He used to work for Boeing. He has no in actual direct involvement with designing the Max, but he's posted a lot of interesting things. And apparently the stabilizer trim, this has been kind of an issue since the 200. It's been a known issue on the 737 where if the stabilizer is at too high an angle and the aircraft is moving 
at too high a rate of speed, just like it was here in Ethiopian, it becomes impossible to actually manually move the trim wheel. So that's probably likely why the, the crew turned the electronic system back on, which reactivated MCAS, because it was not possible to use that manual wheel to undo the damage MCAS did, which is getting back into the idea that the information that Boeing provided to pilots to counteract MCAS was completely insufficient. And it also, I guess, the other questionable thing is the AOA disagree light and sort of, I, I think there was an, as part of the HUD option for the MAX, there was something regarding an AOA data malfunction or, or some sort of other sort of failure light. These were optional pieces of equipment that Boeing has now said, oh, these are going to be standard. But again, whose brilliant idea you know, they knew what this system could do, given sort of bad data input, how anyone thought it was reasonable or, or never mind a, a good idea to not make at least an AOA disagree light standard on the plane is beyond me. Yeah, there are a lot of things that as we learn more about how the system works and, and how the airplane operates under the conditions that MCAS creates – it's, you know, it, like every time we talk about, you know, a, a new investigation, we always say there's, there's never just a single thing. It's always a chain of events that, that occurs. But where does that, you know, where does that chain start and where does that chain end? And in here, I, f- I feel like there's not yet an end to that chain of events. We're, we're right. continually learning more, you know, adding links to the chain of events that led to this crash. Right. And the New York Times put out a great article today that really explains how the 737 was, was based off 1960s design, has 1990s computing power, and is the only, this is a quote, it is the only modern Boeing jet without an electronic alert system that explains what is malfunctioning and how to resolve it. Instead, pilots have to check a manual. And this is the system you would see on Airbus or the 777 or 787 that basically prompts pilots with an error, what's happening, and runs them through these steps to resolve that. The 737 doesn't have any of that. So it's really a manual process of, okay, a warning light is on. What is it? Let's figure out what it is. Let's check the manual. So it, it's really a very purposely dated design. This, this is not a podcast where we're, we're basically just crapping on Boeing, but this is what basically the airlines wanted. And I should note, I guess, for for context that we're recording on the 9th of April, which happens to be the 52nd anniversary of the first flight of the 737. So, I mean, the airplane has been flying for 52 years now, and it's been a great airplane that's, you know, been modified in a number of ways. And and I think that there's a legitimate question as to how far those modifications can go should go and where we go from here is you know how Boeing restores the Max fleet to the air and the software update has been tested and Boeing even took up their CEO Dennis Muhlenberg and into a, a 737 Max 7 you know and filmed it and and showed the you know software test in action there's still a a related issue with FAA certification but not to the MCAS software is how Boeing put it. That's kind of keeping the airplane, you know, from from reentering certification. But 
there's also the FAA's reputation. Can the FAA be trusted to certify? And and by forming this, you know, growing body of what's the word I'm looking certification authorities from around the world, the question becomes: Has the the model of certification now changed because of this incident? Whether or not it's you know kind of enshrined in regulation or or if it's just this is how things are given the situation. Right. And and let's be clear, it will fly again, maybe not today, maybe not next week or even next month, but this the 73 Max will get back in the air. I've gotten the question a number of times of will this be the end of the program and no, that you can't ground the 737 indefinitely. It, it's the backbone of the aviation industry. Jason coming back to Two things you said. One was, you know, this is a 60-year-old plane, and two, this is what airlines wanted. I say that this is a 60-year-old platform, and this wasn't necessarily what airlines wanted. This is what Boeing had to sell in order to not lose ground to the NEO. I remember back in 2010, 2011, and John Ostra had, you know, surprise, another incredible article about this a few weeks back, talking about the origin of the MAX and how it was Americans' order of A321 and A319s, COs followed by a, a follow-on order for NEOs that really spurred Boeing to build the MAX, whereas Initially, they said, yeah, we're going to go ahead and build an all-new airplane, i.e. NSA, new small airplane, which is still years and years away at this point. But I think you you had the original 100s and 200s, and then you had the 300s and 400s and and 500s, and then you had NG being the third generation of 737s. The MAX arguably took the platform one iteration too far. And it was yeah. done out yeah. of commercial expediency rather than, you know, because the platform was expandable. Yeah. And, and we talked about this, I think, two episodes ago when we had John on the program. And, and we discussed a little bit more about how Boeing countered with an airplane that they didn't necessarily want to build. They were ready to kind of move into the direction of a 737 replacement. But I guess their hand was forced by, you know, Americans' insistence to to move to Airbus, and they didn't want to lose that business, and that makes sense to me. I mean, it, it you know it was a massive order at the time, and kind of a shock to the system for Boeing, and I think that they had the design somewhat ready to go, and so what do they do? You know, what do they do next? I think is going to be an interesting point. And, and Gavin, you brought it up earlier. It's you know, does this move the the new small airplane or the the straight seven three seven replacement into kind of a co development space with the NMA? We haven't heard anything about the NMA, you know, for months now. Paris is fast approaching. So what happens now? I think is is one of the most interesting aspects of this. And, and like Jason said, of course the seven three seven Max flies again. You know, Boeing's working to get it back in the air as soon as possible and get it, you know, either the software fix either recertified or re whatever we want to call it. But what happens to the development space? Does Boeing shrink its timeline or expand its portfolio, I guess is the question. I guess we'll find out. And remember, we also haven't heard much about the Triple Seven X at this point either, which has its first, should be having its first flight seeming like any day soon. now. Yeah. Any day. 
They had a very subdued rollout, which was, I guess, supposed originally supposed to be the week after ET302, and Boeing wisely decided to make it employees only. Right. So with the grounding of the Max, I found this interesting article from Air Transport World, who talked to the TUI group, who has done a cost analysis of what this grounding will cost them. And this is an airline with just 15 73 MAX 8s in its fleet of over 150 aircraft. And assuming the MAX is grounded through June, it will cost them $200 million. And that I guess most of that cost is from leasing aircraft and keeping on aircraft that they were planning on retiring longer than they thought. But that's just one airline with only 15 of these aircraft costing $200 million. Jeez. Yeah, it's, it's not certainly not cheap. And as airlines continue to cancel flights that would be operated by the MAX and flights that would be, you know, that they now can't operate because they need the other aircraft, you know, it, it, it adds up. Yeah. An American is still canceling 90 flights system-wide per day, which isn't the end of the world, but it is it is a bit of a pain. United is, has a smaller fleet of MAX aircraft, so it's absorbed that with other aircraft. Delta does not have any, but around the world, there are a lot of grounded MAXs and they're being removed from the schedule through May, June, July, and, and permanently until I guess they know when these will be back in the air in some cases. Yeah, I think Air Canada removed their MAX 8s at least through the summer, if not later. Yeah, they even have an Air Transit A330-200 running some mainline Air Canada flights today. So I guess the real question we have to ask is, are we going to see A380s on domestic flights as, as wet lease planes to fill in for the MAX? Ah, I don't think so. That'd be awesome, though. <laughs> I know where you can find some. Yeah. <laughs> if you're interested, I might know a guy. Yeah. Where is 9HMIP these days, anyway? I haven't seen it was much in, of it. Uh, it was in Beha the, this morning. Still? Yep, still. Ah, They're yeah. getting ready for their... They have their customer lined up for the summer season, but they just ah, so th- haven't this gotten is that far yet. The high, the high flight A380, if you don't happen to know what 9H MIP is, and that aircraft has not done a damn thing since the end of January. So well, it's, it's had some... It's had a rough go of it lately. Its last commercial flight was Christmas Eve. I'm, you know, and then it got beat up and then it had to get maintenance. No, no, it was, it was beat up before that. Then it got put back in service and then did it break again? I don't know. Either way, no, it's not no, doing it had much. To go, it, it spent time in Toulouse for maintenance. That was uh, put before, a whole new thing in yeah, it. that was the middle of last year, I guess, August, September. Now it, it did some flights at the end of last year and now it's just hanging out and not doing anything. So yeah. if you need an A380, we know where to find one. I'll keep that yeah, in mind. Anyway. <laughs> Let's move on to the great move, which took place. Great move, finally. That, for that's real what this they're time. calling. Yeah, the, the, we finally did it. Is also what this is called. So, for those who haven't been following the great move, which is what Turkish Airlines called it, and which is what the documentary that they filmed over the weekend is going to be called, I believe, when it comes out. So, if, if you're in the market for a great documentary about Turkish Airlines. I have no idea who filmed it or where to be available. But when we learn that information, we'll talk about it in a future podcast. Anyway, Turkish Airlines finally, after I think four or five delays in opening the new eh, Istanbul not, not huge airport. Delays. We're, we're not talking Berlin here. Well, that's, I, I feel like that is never, you know, never going to happen. But we'll, no. we'll deal with that on a, on a separate podcast or something. 
But the much-delayed Istanbul airport, though not as much as Berlin, is finally operational, and Turkish Airlines over the weekend moved hundreds of aircraft from Ataturk Airport to the, it's just the Istanbul airport at this point, and the IATA code moved along with it. So the new airport was ISL. It now carries the IST IATA code, and that has created no shortage of fun with scheduling, but things seem to be working themselves out. Yeah, and they allotted 45 hours to get this done. They say they did it 12 hours earlier than projected. In the 86-year history, they're finally moving to a new base, but it's pretty cool. 86 years is a long time at one airport, but they're done for real. Yeah, and, and so the old airport now will be kind of a cargo and charter private airport, and then the new airport will be the massive, I think it's got 900 runways or something like that. Something like that. So kind of like what they did in Doha, where the old airport remains in operation, but for much more specific use cases. Right. And and so everything's getting up to speed, and it seems to have gone fairly smoothly. Yeah. That's once good. once they you know did it so I guess the delays the delays helped so that that's always a good thing is when when you can you know actually make it work the one thing I'm kind of sad about though is I was thinking about this today when preparation for the podcast is that the absolutely fantastic plane spotting locations are just gone now yeah and I I've never been to Istanbul but I know there were some really good spots to shoot out there. The new airport is way up to the northwest of Istanbul. I have no idea how one even gets there, if there's a train or whatever, but it's way out of town, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I haven't read much about any spotting there from the Istanbul community, but hopefully there's there's some good spots or or at least somewhere they can go because I was thinking about that and I was kind of disappointed. But Yeah, and the airport's hopefully, not Hopefully fully... somebody can check it out. Yeah, the airport's also not fully done. They do plan on continually building it out to much further improve the capacity, but right now it's it's fully the, open. The western and runway will actually be in Hungary at some point. <laughs> if you think the Paderborn or however you pronounce it runway in in Amsterdam is bad, this is going to be a lot worse. So it'll be interesting to see what happens as as the airport expands in Istanbul and and how things get underway. But we'll have to go and, and check it out, and it'll be fun. I want a new airport. We need one here. You you need we like need, nineteen new airports. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say we need, we need at least three. So the reason we actually asked Gavin to come onto the show today is because Jason and I can barely do arithmetic, let alone you know complex calculations of any kind. And Gavin has put together kind of a rundown of how airlines are looking to the future and working their way through kind of fleet renewals and what's happening with orders and orders that are no longer orders and orders that became deliveries, et cetera, et cetera. So Gavin, yes, please walk us through some of the things that you think our listeners should know about what's coming to an airline near you. Or not so near you as the case or may be. Not or so is not yes. coming to an airline near you. Which is often the, the more interesting part here. Yeah. I mean, where should we start? Because there's, there's been a lot of movements in the last, call it, three and a half months. Sure. So so I, I think a good place to start would be the, the Middle East 3. Okay. Because that gives us a good place to jump into where a lot of the large orders and larger blocks of 
cancellations or deferments have come from as well. Yeah. So Etihad, arguably the most boutique of the ME3, they had orders for 62 A350s, 25 777Xs, and with 42 787 orders still outstanding, that got chopped massively. They originally had 40 A350 900s and 22 A350 1000s. That has been cut to simply 20 A350 1000s. What's interesting is that they currently operate 19 777 300ERs, and whether or not those are going to be replacements or additions remains to be seen. What's interesting is the sort of three-way balancing between the A350-1000, the 777-300ER, and the new 777 is that from the best I can tell, and this is based on Cathay Pacific's operations and a little bit of Qatar's, and looking at the payload range charts, any mission that the A350-1000 can do, pretty much the 777-300ER can do, but it burns more fuel. However, if you need to carry more, the 777-300ER can carry more than the 350-1000 with that fuel burn penalty, which is why you see Cathay Pacific flying the 300ER to JFK because they carry a lot of belly cargo, but the A350-1000 goes to Dulles where it's a newer route. So interesting sort of mixing and matching there. They reduced their 777-9 order. This is Etihad still from 25 to 6, which is just a weird number. And that's a really small subfleet. So we'll see there. I think there's more story to come. They currently operate 30 787s, 25 5787-10s, and they have 42 to come, 17 more 789s, and 25 7877-10s. So Etihad's really cut back on its growth relative to where it thought it was going to be a couple of years ago. Moving across from Abu Dhabi to Dubai, the big news was that Emirates cut its outstanding A380 order from a total of 162 down to 123, which is a reduction of 39, which sort of, you know, is the end of the line as it stands for the A380 production line. They have 109 already, so there's 14 to come, and I think Airbus is putting out about one a month, so we've got about another year-ish of production. In exchange for their 39 A380s, they are getting 40 A330 900s and 30 A350 900s. Now, those who have paid attention to the history of the Emirates order book will remember that Emirates had but canceled an order for 70 A350s, which was then replaced with a 7710 order, which was never formalized, which has now gone by the wayside because it was never pen was never put to paper, and we're back to A350s and A330neos. The interesting thing there is that Emirates used to have a decent-sized fleet of A33200s, which has gotten rid of. So as it stands, the smallest plane in the Emirates fleet is the 777-200LR, which seats about 300 people. That is the smallest plane in the fleet. And they only have a few of those. They've only got 10. And they're for specialized routes. So I think it's going to be interesting. It will, you know, when they did a big route cutback a few years ago, 
part of the issue, I believe, was that they didn't have any smaller planes than a 777-300ER for a lot of destinations, which meant they cut back frequencies because they couldn't downgauge. So this should help alleviate that problem and also gives them planes that will reach Europe and Asia very easily in the A330neo with better fuel burn. So I think probably a wise move. Their ambition's a bit tempered, but I think a more commercially viable aircraft mix. And they've still left intact their order for 150 777Xs, which is just a huge amount of planes. But they already operate like something like 140 777-300ERs. So big appetite for airplanes. And to round out... The ME3 is Qatar, and His Excellency Akbar al-Baker is always tinkering a bit. Back a number of years ago, they had an order for 50 A320neos. There were actually planes that were built, painted in Qatar Airways livery, and were test-flown, but for whatever reason were not delivered. And so that order was sort of postponed indefinitely for a little while. Qatar ordered 737 MAX 8s which are now being taken up by Air Italy because they converted their 320neo order to 321neos, including 10 A321LRs. So it's mix and match, however you, how, whichever way you want it. Their fleet of 7878s are also going to be heading to Air Italy from sometime probably around the end of this year with 7879s coming in to replace the 7878s. As far as A350s go, Qatar is a big operator of those. Their original order was for 23500s, 4900s, 21000s. That became 43900s and 37351000s. Now not five of the remaining 900s have been converted to 1000s, and four 900s have been canceled, leaving them with orders for 34 35900s and 42000s, plus the Three that they have on lease from LATAM, which were from the original TAM order before that merger took place, including one that left Toulouse in LATAM colors and flew straight to Doha. (laughs) I don't understand this. I I I don't think anyone does. Is it an advertising opportunity for LATAM where they say, we're going to lease you the plane, that's fine, but it's got to stay in our colors? I mean, it's never been. To South America. It's never flown passengers for Latam. I have no idea. It's that's it's just very interesting to me. Bizarre. Th- that's another word for it, yes. His Excellency has also said that their A380s are going to be retired by age 10. The current old, the oldest one is currently five. Hmm. Yeah, so another airline that is winding down its still single-digit aged A380 fleet. Right. And speaking of canceling A380 orders, Qantas has finally told us what we all knew already and have known for a long time. That order's been in purgatory for like eternity, right? Yeah. So they originally ordered 20. They've taken 12. The eight remaining ones are canceled. And I think the, the interesting thing about the Qantas order is that, you know, when they ordered them, their joint services agreement with British Airways was in effect and the only airline they were competing against on Trans-Pacific was United. And they were getting absurdly high business class fares from LA, and so the whole thing made sense. Let's go bigger. 
And then global financial crisis happened. Delta and Virgin Australia started flying Trans-Pacific. Emirates almost swallowed Qantas whole. They made a deal with them. They ended their joint service agreement with BA, did it with Emirates. But the interesting thing now is the reshuffling of the Qantas flying to London, because now they're da- they've pulled their planes from Dubai and run them through Singapore again, which is how they used to do it. And they have their daily triple seven eight seven nine from Perth to Heathrow nonstop, which apparently has been giving them fantastic yields and is very, very full, even though the plane is less than half the size of an A380. So moving forward, as their 747s get retired, I think Qantas is probably a very good candidate for the 777X or the A350, and that's going to be an interesting race to watch. Yeah, and speaking of the 777X, I'm particularly interested in the next airline we have here, which is actually the entire Lufthansa group who is always fascinating to watch their moves as they will order aircraft and then not really tell you where they're going. They'll figure out which airline they place it with later, and they have a lot of outstanding orders, don't they? Yeah, they announced orders for 20 more A350s and 27879s. I think it's fairly safe to say that the A350s will stay at Lufthansa and probably replace 34600s, much to John Walton's dismay. The 787s are more of an interesting question. Swiss has five A3 4300s. Austrian has some 763s and some 777-200ERs that are going to be getting up there in age. So I think there's a lot of natural homes for those planes inside the Lufthansa group, just not necessarily at Lufthansa itself. Right. And the Swiss is actually in the middle of refurbishing their 34300s right now. So they must have at least a couple years more left in them. But Lufthansa itself, mainland Lufthansa still has A380s, of which they'll be retiring six of. And they're also one of the few airlines in the world with the 747-8 Intercontinental. Who knows what ends up happening with those? Yeah, that one's going to be interesting just because the size-wise, that plane and the 777-9 are very, very close in size. So sort of picking and choosing what planes go where will be pretty interesting to watch. I think the, I don't know if we want to call it funny, but most amusing article that I read last week was the article about the narrow body order that Lufthansa Group has coming down the line. That which said which that they were going be, to choose, 737 or A320? Yeah, and I don't know if the underlying assumption of the article was that perhaps Lufthansa will greatly consider the C919. <laughs> but and, and, no, it was, it, was very, it was very strange to me. Airline will order airplane, perhaps, maybe, probably one of these. Yeah, wow. I, I mean, yeah. I just thought that was a very, a very amusing kind of concept to base an article on. It was. I want to fast forward to BA because, Gavin, BA is kind of your sweet spot here. BA What's going has on announced BA? an order for 18 777-9s, which – you know, I had long suspected because they had an interesting mark on their parking stands that didn't make any sense. So I, I kind of suspected this was in the works. The interesting thing is what they've said that they're going to replace. They said they're going to be replacing 14 400s and four triple seven. Well, they just said triple sevens, but I think we can safely say they're triple seven 200s. 
going back, they are also taking their first of 18 A350-1000s, which they've released the Lopa for, and they've pretty much said that those are going to be replacing the oldest 747-400s in their sort of mid-J configuration. They've got 52 business class seats, a weird setup where their premium economy section is in between business and first, and they've got the, you know, tied for the worst IFE in the fleet. Jason, I think that's what you were on flying from Cape Town. So many times with that thing. <laughs> and you get them even at JFK, which is... I do. I've had two flights out of JFK recently with that. And this is what confuses me a bit. This The A350-1000 has their absolute latest, greatest newest product with their newest Club World suite seat. And they're going to be sending it to destinations where they currently send their crappiest crap in the fleet. Well, you know, they need to make, you know, make up for lost for lost time. Make up to New York. We deserve it. Yeah. We always deserve everything. Yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're getting the 777-300ER here recently. You know, I, that's I probably, it's the most flexible plane in their fleet. It can stand in for pretty much anything save for an A380 and a Super J747. So it kind of fills in where necessary. I think, you know, it's – who knows? I've heard rumblings that those are – that's going to become – once the 747s are fully retired, that's actually going to become a very specialized fleet that we could be seeing quite a bit of at JFK. But I hope so. But I, I do not know. You know, that's, that's just a rumbling I've heard. They did do a, a little fill-in order of those recently, didn't they? Yeah, they went from three to four extra, so they're going to have 16 total for delivery, I think, starting this year, if not next year. Excellent. So, I, I look forward to seeing more and more of those here. Yeah. They, they, they just so, barely fit at Terminal 7, but they look great. Yeah. Well, you know, they're not going to be at Terminal 7 for long, so, you know, that will be interesting. The other interesting thing is they've sort of gone back and forth on when they're going to start retiring 777-200s and 200ERs, because when that top-up order for 300ERs was first announced, they said it was going to be basically one-for-one for for their three remaining 200A market planes, the oldest of their 777s. And now the retirement's been pushed back until the 777-9s start arriving. So it's a bit of a moving target. The interesting thing is that they've also said they're going to start refitting certain 777s with the business class suite, while they've said they're also going to be retiring at least one 777-200ER. So, you know. BA's got a lot going on, basically. They have a lot going on. Their 777-200 fleet is a complete mess. They've got yeah. four four Lopas at Heathrow, three at Gatwick, and only one Lopa overlaps, and that's the one one of the two that have the really, really old IFE. Yeah, which I always end up on somehow. But one more before we let you go, American. Ah. The A three fifty nine hundred order is is officially done, kaput no more. They love the 787-8. Well, the 767s are finally... Say, they say they love the 787-8, but shortly after we recorded a year ago, I found the SEC filing that American made when they made that order. And if, there were a few, in, two specific interesting tidbits. As it relates to the A350 cancellation, they've said, they said in the thing, they, we will record a special charge at some point, they didn't say when, in their financial statements that will be sort of minimal relative to the overall operations of the airline. 
I was not able to find it in any of their subsequent quarterly reports, nor in their annual report that they published in February. The other really interesting thing is the 7878s, because if you look at the Boeing order book, the 7879s in, from that order were booked as American orders. However, the 7878s were booked as Boeing Capital orders. Boeing Capital is the sort of aircraft finance and lease company that's internal to Boeing. And it's peculiar because going back to our aircraft leasing discussion, American management loves their enhanced equipment trust certificates, their specialized leasing vehicles where they issue bonds against collateral pools. The SEC filing said that they were doing operating leases from Boeing Capital, which means these planes are cannot be placed in American WTCs. The last time they did that was their big A320 family order of CEOs and NEOs, where all of the CEOs were taken on operating lease initially from Airbus, who then sold the aircraft out to other leasing companies. So it will be very interesting to see what happens with those planes. It is totally possible in my eyes that those planes actually never get delivered to American. That, you know, if and when NMA gets launched, that those sort of get reshuffled and turn into NMA planes for American. Just when you think you know everything or pretend to know everything, Gavin, you shatter all expectations and <laughs> blow us away with your knowledge. Thank you. I'm a vat of generally useless information. <laughs> but useful for our podcast and for that, we thank you very much. <laughs> Gavin Werbelov, our resident numbers expert and, and with good reason, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have you back soon. Thanks, guys. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and do some updates on a few stories that we've been following for the past month or so now. Some updates on some breaking news that broke immediately after we ended our podcast <laughs> last time. And we'll also find out what's happening in the Goodfellas cosplay arena. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back, and it is time for the part of the program where we find out either how right or how wrong we were after last week's episode. And in this particular instance, we recorded as WOW was saying that they were reconfiguring some of their flight structure, but they were still operating normally. Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be great. Exactly. And right after we finished recording and sent the podcast off, they folded. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, in the middle of their daily operation, they were, they had dispatched their fleet to North America, and that is where their fleet remains right now. Yeah, there was an aircraft in Toronto, two in Montreal. Newark. Yeah, the, the one from Toronto went back to Europe, to, I believe Shannon today, or, or yesterday. So they're slowly being taken back by lessers and, and will eventually fly elsewhere. So my, you know, hoping it all works out optimism was extremely misplaced in our last episode. And for that, I do not apologize, but I am sorry. Right. But don't worry, their CEO has a plan to crowdsource funding. Yeah. For, uh, don't do it. Don't. 
I'm shocked that someone who ran a, a what seemed to be a coherent airline would even think of doing something like that. But don't be stupid. Don't spend a cent <laughs> on this. This airline is dead. It's not coming back. And if it does, it's because someone else has used the licensing of the name. Like we're on Eastern Airlines 19 at this point. Just don't do it. I think so. Yep. I mean, I would be happy to fly on like meh air. Isn't that the branding that Virgin America did back in the day for a really boring airline as a PR stunt? I probably. Yeah. It sounds like something that they would do. But I mean, you just don't oversell it. That way, if you go out of business, like, you know, it's like, meh, meh, okay. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Exactly. Moving on to other things that we have been following for quite some time now. Pakistan is still closed, but it's kind of open, but it's really still closed, but it might be open soon, but it'll probably stay closed. I'm still confused about what they're doing. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they know what they're doing at this point. So it's the 9th of April. Yesterday, the 8th of April, they said, more now we're going to be closed until the 24th of April. But there are a few routes that are open. But yesterday, they also refused entry to another plane that was following one of the routes that they said was open that had to then go around and not fly on the route that they said it was open. Yeah. And if you were in charge of these decisions being made in Pakistan, please reach out and we will be more than happy to ask you, what are you doing? We would love to talk to the folks who are making these decisions. But until then, we will wait and continue to follow this story. A story that has been fascinating to me is one that, uh, Jason, you you showed me earlier today, and, and I've been trying to read more and more about it because it, I was surprised that this would happen. Yeah. It's not the first time something like this has happened, nor the second time even, but I will read through this thread on Twitter from earlier today about an armed robbery in Albania. Basically, an Austrian Airlines aircraft landed in this Albanian airport, and there was a heist, a very elaborate, very guns blazing heist, basically. Apparently, they stormed the airport. Uh, I guess Albanian airport security isn't very robust. They, an eyewitness on the aircraft said attackers took money out of the plane while pointing AK-47s at guards of an armored car transport. They stopped the Austrian Airlines plane while it was almost ready to take off to Vienna. They managed to open the cargo doors and drive off with a considerable amount of money. They drove away from the airport and attacked police with grenades and AK-47 rounds in an exchange of fire. One of the attackers was killed and thrown aside in a ditch by his comrades. Apparently, it's about 10 million euros possibly taken off this flight. It's quite a story. One of the vans they used to pull off the heist was found burned somewhere. But uh, apparently, this aircraft was taxiing out to the runway when they stormed the airport to rob it. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's just an incredible story. And like you, you it's it's out of a movie. I, I'm, Literally. I'm sure it will become a movie at some point. Yeah, also that. I mean, I'm just off the top of my head. I mean, there's Goodfellas. Then oh, there's yeah. the, I think the movie was just called Heist with, was it, it was like Danny DeVito, Gene Hackman, and I forget who else is in the movie, but I, I think they, they rob a, a Swiss plane. But, I mean, it's just like, it's literally out of a movie. Yeah, so if you're wondering about the... The Lufthansa heist. Go watch the movie Goodfellas. Basically, some mobsters had a tip on some money being transported out of a Lufthansa flight to JFK. 
And using some of their connections, they just kind of wandered into the warehouse, took many, many millions of dollars and, and kind of just walked out with it. So there were no no guns being fired, no grenades lobbed. They literally just bribed the guard, went in, took many millions of dollars and then left. This one's yeah. a little different. This is a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. But the flight did depart today. The Austrian flight did go back to Vienna at three hours late and 10 million euros later. I guess they had to redo the weight and balance. Yeah, I wonder how much 10 million euros weighs. I guess it all depends on what denomination it's in. <laughs> we'll never know. We have so many questions. Let's throw it over to you in oh. in a previous iteration of you with Seth and hear about the Aircraft Interiors Expo, what you two got up to, and some of the, the newfangled things that are coming to the inside of an aircraft near you soon. Seth, welcome back to the show. Seth Miller here has been on the podcast with us a few times, usually after events regarding airline passenger experience conferences. So welcome back. Thank you very much. And conveniently enough, we've just finished another airline passenger experience conference. Yeah, weird. So this was day, I guess, day, technically day three or four of the Aircraft Interior Expo here in Hamburg, Germany. Definitely the biggest and most important show of the year around everything that goes inside airplanes, be it entertainment, Wi-Fi, seats, galleys, laboratories, plastic moldings. Fabrics, monuments, the hoses behind the walls that carry the air conditioning, the overhead panel service units, literally everything, widgets and galore. So a lot of stuff you sit in and see and a lot of stuff you don't sit in and will never see, which I guess is stuff behind the, the sidewalls and all sorts of stuff you're not supposed to know is there, but it all comes from here. So a lot of things start off as concepts or ideas. They eventually go into the certification process. Someone eventually buys it. And then maybe what you say? Three years from now, you might see some of this stuff actually flying, give or take. Yeah, for the newest of the things, it usually takes a few years, and that's challenging. But you know, some of it will actually be flying sooner than that. So, you know, I, I think that we saw some really interesting things that will definitely be in service sooner than that. One of them, a new IFE system from the folks at Saffron, which used to be known as Zodiac. There's been some mergers lately, but what they're calling Rave Ultra, and Rave is their product line. Ultra is the newest version. And they've been showing it off for a few months, but they've got a customer. They're going to be shipping it. Seven customers. Seven customers. That's right. Sorry. They're, the first shipments go to seat manufacturers Q3 of this year. It is going to be flying or is expected to be flying Q3 of next year. So not waiting three years, just waiting 18 months, which still, when I say it that way, still it seems like a terribly long wait for this yeah, cool stuff. But, but it's coming. It's coming. And it, it has some really, really neat features. So here's my take. The coolest thing of the show is phones, unless you're a Samsung user, do not have headphone jacks anymore. And that's a huge pain if you're flying, because typically if you don't have a headphone jack, you've transitioned almost certainly to Bluetooth, AirPods, Beats, whatever, Bose. That means it's likely the case that the only time you need wired headphones is when you're on board an aircraft trying to use the seatback entertainment system. 
And if you're like me, you forget your adapter or you forget your old headphones that you have lying around because these systems do not have Bluetooth built in, which is hugely annoying. But now they do, don't they? They do. They do. And not only do they have Bluetooth enabled, it's Bluetooth that you can pair to any device, not just airline provided. And specifically the Rave Ultra system, it's Bluetooth that is at every seat in the cabin. And so there's been a lot of talk for years about RF interference and just how you know much trouble it's going to be to get you know 200 pairs of AirPods hooked up or 200 different seats broadcasting the Bluetooth signal out. And there are still some challenges around it, but we sat in a demo today and watched as a screen turned on and even with a whole bunch of devices around, we only saw you know a handful. Um, yeah. It's not perfect. It doesn't only show you yours sitting right in front of it, but instead of a 15-foot range, they've knocked it down to about four feet, right. which should only get you know your row and the row behind you at worst. And that's only searching for devices that are in pairing mode, which in this case, because it's a, a, a show with a ton of electronics around, there were a lot of, there were signs and, and digital billboards and a whole bunch of stuff. But in, in production, it looks like this is going to be an actual usable Thing. So it means I can leave my wired headphones at home and just pack my Bluetooth headphones wherever I go. So that's something I'm excited for, but don't count on seeing that on every seat on every plane for a very long time. Yeah, that, I mean, that's as with most of the awesome stuff that comes out of this show, there's going to be a progress. It's going to be amazing, but the best bits aren't going to be everywhere. And when it, even for this, you know, we're talking about 18 months till the first planes show up. So, but it is coming. And, you know, the UI is built. We actually, actively did the pairing and tested it to prove that it worked and not some sort of crazy scam they were running on us. That was nice. Yeah, I only managed to break two of their screens while trying to do it, but the third one worked. Listen, Jason. There were a lot of Bluetooth devices out there, so it kind of got a little confused, but that's okay because I don't think you'll see a scenario like that in real life. Yeah. But what else did we see? A really nice new seat. Yeah. And a really not, I take that back. They, They were both very nice. One happened to be business class and one happened to be the slimmest of slimline economies. Right. So, But still nice, yes. which is interesting. So over at Collins Aerospace, which used to be Rockwell Collins, which used to be BE Aerospace, has the successor to their hugely, hugely popular Super Diamond seat, which you'll find on American and a ton of international carriers. It pretty much became the default go-to all yeah. aisle access seat. This was the U.S. Airways, I think, was first, weren't they? Maybe. I, I if, if this is I'm pretty sure they were. Anyway, it is the herringbone seat that everybody loves. Yes. Or reverse herringbone. I forget which is which. But. Yeah. So a ton of airlines have taken that. There's a successor to it now. Yes, there is. And so I will say, people who, in terms of recent news, people have been talking about the seat. The BA new club suite seat is super diamond with a door. Right. So that's what we're talking about. The successor to it is called Elements, and you'll be shocked to learn that it looks almost identical. It does, but they've done a lot of work to carve out more space for your feet. So you're not so cramped. If you've ever been in one of these seats, you know the footwell is pretty small, and it doesn't really let you turn around or kind of sleep on your side. They did a lot of work to make that possible, though. Yeah, it, it is a really nice bit of extra space there. There's some tweaks to the tray table area. There's some tweaks to the sort of storage wall, cubby, whatnot, over your shoulder. They can put a big screen in there, which is nice. There's some 
really interesting things. Was this the one that they were selling the first row as super premium? Yes. So, and you can also add a door to it. Yeah, you can add a door to it. So the first row super premium thing is also interesting. You know, those in the know traveling on these planes where the seats, where your feet sort of go under the seat in front of you have known for some time that the bulkhead row has more foot room because there's not another seat blocking off half your foot well. And in this case, with the Elements demo that we saw this year, they're showing it off and sort of trying to convince airlines to make it a ultra-premium product, sort of a business plus of some sort. Which is not unheard of. Look at what Korean did on some of their newest aircraft. The seats in business class and first class are pretty much identical, but the screen's a little bit bigger. There's a tiny bit more bed length. That's it. Yeah, and this... This one, I don't know that you're necessarily changing the bed length, but wider screen because of the way it's formed. They showed, I think, an 18 inch in the regular seats and 23 in the first row. The footwell is like double the size. There's a lot of interesting things about it. You could, in theory, even only put doors on one row. Yeah. So, Which I think is actually something China Eastern did. They put doors on the first row and then the rest of the cabin is doorless. So what if you're flying economy, like probably 90-something percent of people in the world? Well, there's a couple things to consider. One is, at this point, it seems like everybody has conceded defeat on efforts to get legroom to increase. And so now we're trying to slim our slimline seats to be slimmer and give us back some knee room, even at 28-inch pitch. Is and it working? Bizarrely, yes. The folks at Miris which is a British company making seats. They've sold a ton to AirAsia Air and even some AirAsia X that are going on the long haul. They also are on TUI, TUI Fly, I think, 767 Retro. 767 Retro. Yep. yep. They are sort of showing off, but not quite really, in their back room, a product they're calling Kestrel. And it is a really, really impressively thin product. Carbon fiber frame. They did a lot of work tweaking the padding and the thickness of the frame and such that they got it down to a 28 inch pitch where you and I sat in it, bags fit under the seat in front of us just fine. And we had knee room. We did. We like had knee room at 28 inch pitch, which is unheard room. of. Yeah, 28 inch pitch typically means you're going to be uncomfortable. The seat in front of you is going to be touching your knees in almost all circumstances. In this case, that didn't happen. Yeah, pre-reclined, which is you know code for doesn't recline. Mm -hmm. But you know, we only sat in it for 10 or 15 minutes. I'm not going to pretend that it's a good long haul option. I'm not even going to pretend that I know what it's like after three hours. But certainly could put my butt down in there and not hate myself immediately, which is a pretty impressive status for something that tight. Yeah. it's Or that dense, I guess. That's the kind of actual innovation we look for at this kind of show. Things that make the flying experience better and something that is real that will come out to market. There's a lot of fake stuff that you see here, the stuff yep. that is thrown against the wall that probably won't ever stick. We're going to use Skyrider? Yeah, Skyrider. I don't want to get started on that. But my, my favorite thing that we'll probably not see but is a good idea are the uh, Lufthansa Systems overhead USB ports where Lufthansa Technique, sorry, not Lufthansa Systems, Technique, where basically in the passenger service unit above your head, there are lights and they are tapping into the currents already being delivered to those lights and putting USB ports up there. And it's not great. Your phone dangles from the ceiling. 
but it will give an opportunity to low-cost carriers to install USB ports where they in the past would never have done it. Yep, and they're the 2-amp power doesn't require running new wiring for the airline, so it's cheaper to install. The overall cost of the system is relatively low compared to some of the others, and so it really is nice. There's some questions about you know what happens when the oxygen mask deploys and a few other things, but they've promised that they're working through those details, and they think it'll get certified if they get a customer, so... You know, it's going to be an interesting product and may actually end up flying one of these days. One of these days. So that's about it from here in Hamburg. Seth, thank you very much for joining us once again, and I'll see you next year. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks for having me. So it sounds like you had a a pretty good time in, in Hamburg, you made it there, you made it back without too much hassle. And what was the, I mean, if you had to kind of pick one thing that you you didn't see that you would have liked to have seen possibly, is there anything in that category? Yeah. I mean, there were some fancy new business class seats that I would like to see that it, they're kind of difficult to get into those booths and see. But really... I'd like to see more very good economy seats. They're out there. Recaro had a, a seat that actually won a Crystal Cabin Award that's amazing. It has lots of features, but it's up to the airlines to actually buy and implement them and put them in service. So let's close the show with an incident report, one which I'm happy to report there were minor injuries involved, but it is just from a sitcom or something. Jason, I will let you kind of delve into what happened here. Oh, okay. I definitely have the incident report open now. Yep. (laughs) So going off memory, last year, there was a Saudi Arabian flight that flew into Dubai and celebrating, again, going off the top of my head here, Saudi something day. It was a national day of celebration for Saudi Arabia. Unknowingly to the crew, the fire teams in Dubai gave them a water cannon salute, which is basically these crews, they put their water cannons on the fire trucks in a high pressure setting. They arc it over the aircraft and you get that nice look that we all know and love when they give a water cannon salute. Unfortunately, on one of the trucks, the handheld controller that the firefighters or personnel use to control where that water jet is going malfunctioned at that very moment. And that sent the very high pressure spray of water going in every direction, up, down, everywhere. One of those directions was directly at the A320, specifically at the overwing exit, which blew in the door. And that triggered the sensor to deploy the inflatable slide. And it kind of just... It, that's not good. You don't want to do that. No. And so, yeah, the, the, the minor injury occurred to the passenger who was sitting directly inside the exit door. When <laughs> yeah, the water cannon <laughs> pushed the door in, it, it hit that passenger. Luckily, they, they did not require any medical attention and they were able to continue their journey. And they now forever have one of the greatest stories. And I was just sitting time. there in the exit row one day and then all of a sudden the, the exit exploded and I was all wet. Yeah, it's quite the... I guess screw it, but I mean, it's like one of those things you don't even think of. It's like the controller just stopped working, and then it started spraying up and down and up and down. And yeah, but better here exactly. than in an actual emergency. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. And just exactly as the moment as the door 
passed in front of these kind of incidents aren't unheard of there have been others where the boom of the fire truck accidentally hits the wingtip or something or they are just really bad at aiming and end up hitting a window and breaking it or whatever so it's not unheard of but a malfunction of the controller uh, misdirecting that's a new the sprite. That's, that's a new that's, one. I mean, it might not be new, but it's the first I've heard of it. Yeah, luckily everyone was okay. A little water was involved, but other than that, everything worked out and, and the aircraft eventually made it back into service after what I am assuming is somebody put a fan inside of it and repacked the slide. Fantastic. This has been episode 55 of Avtalk. 55 episodes. Yeah, 55 is... How about that? that that's fantastic that's a number yeah if you like the podcast if you've listened to all all 55 episodes or a good chunk of them head over to itunes leave us a review leave us a rating it helps people find the podcast and and, you know it it makes us all feel warm and fuzzy if you don't like the podcast let us know why if you have anything that you would like to talk about if you have anything you would like us to talk about email us at podcast at fr24.com we read all of the emails and i make jason respond to the really important ones do you you're supposed to be huh I'll, I'll okay, check my we'll to-do work pile. on this for next time, and we'll get back to you in episode 56. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.